Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to church. Uh, exactly right. The woo-woos are 100% right. So um, I'm really excited. We've been setting a, a pretty uh, exciting tone with Lovember this month. So we had Mike bring us an incredible uh, sermon on boundaries for week one, which set a really incredible and important tone, I think, and, and a basis for which we're all speaking out of as we proceed. And that was great. Really lovely sermon. Thanks, Pastor Mike, if you're watching, you're on holidays. Uh, Then last week, (laughs) last week, Jacob Blackwell brought us a great sermon on singleness. But as someone who knew they were coming up this week to preach on marriage, Jacob basically came up and did like, held up a boombox playing Beyonce single ladies, and then just kind of like, off the platform. (laughs) And I was left going, that is fantastic. Thanks, Jacob, because I feel like I'm just kind of holding a mic, holding a microphone now going, yeah, marriage is great or whatever. Uh, it was, it made it a, a bit of a, an interesting thing to walk into. So, I, I will be preaching on marriage today, and I want to preface a little bit by just kind of going, I, I think it'll look a little bit differently than maybe you might be expecting. Uh, traditionally, marriage sermons, from what I, I've heard and what we've experienced in November, have just been like this big rah-rah-rah Marriage is great sermon, and marriage is fantastic, and it's great, and it's beautiful. It's also, amongst the beauty and the butterflies, there's expectation and there's importance, and I don't want to step over those today, and that's really what we're going to be speaking into today. So what does our Australian culture currently tell us about marriage? What does it mean? How important is it? How should we do it? And we, I think a lot of us find sometimes single people, engaged people, newly married people, people who have been married for 15 years or 50, there's this almost this cry out of like, if somebody could just slip me a rule book, that would be super helpful. Um, but there isn't one. There's not a set answer. As with almost everything we do in life, there is no set way to do this. But we do have a framework for it. Um, we do have a framework, and the funny thing is 95% of people I would suggest that get married in Australia actually start with the exact same framework, not Christians, people. People that get married start with the same framework, and it's not a book that we've read, it's not a podcast we've listened to, it's, it's present in everything we've ever seen. It's media, it's TV shows, it's, it is in some books, although it's not a book about this, uh, and it's pretty simply marriage vows. We've all heard them. I, why don't I do this? Let's make it super personal. I text, take you, Cara, to be my, I can skip the wife slash husband bit now, can't I? I've made it personal. I text, take you, Cara, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. So it may not have been those exact words that you said on your wedding day or saw at somebody else's, but that framework has built the foundation for pretty much every wedding that you've probably ever been to. And not just the ones that you've been to, literally hundreds of years. Wedding vows were written in like the 1500s, right? So the, the boundary and that, that basis has been in millions of weddings, I would argue, at this point. We've repeated them. We've heard voices quiver. We've seen people well up. Uh, we've 
definitely, some of us have definitely welled up somewhere along those as we've watched people that we love do them. I've done that many, many times because it's that acceptance and that recognition that what we're seeing is people really leaning into that idea of forever, which feels very, very permanent and very, very big. But here's the problem we have, church, is that currently we take these beautiful words, this foundation for a beautiful marriage, and we just tend to forget about them along the way. We remember the wedding speech that impressed. We definitely remember the wedding speeches that went too long and did not impress. We remember our friend that cut up every single move on the dance floor. We remember the other friend that definitely had one too many glasses of red wine. But when's the last time you remember talking to somebody about somebody else's wedding vows? Unless you're Pastor P, <laughs> who famously forgot her printout of her custom wedding vows that she had written and informed Mike, who was getting her and Tommy married, uh, from the altar through gritted teeth quietly. Uh, so Mike was like, oh, why don't we pray and let's work this out as he scrambled to find an old version on his phone. Um, now the funny thing is about this story, if you've been around Encounter for a little while, you've probably heard it. Even in this story, we remember the story about the missing vows. We don't specifically remember the vows themselves. And if you know Pastor P, you know that she would have put countless time into getting those just right. She would have had the exact words she wanted to say. Every comma, every full stop would have been just analyzed and reviewed to within an inch of its life. Yet the story still remains the story of the missing vows, not the vows themselves. Now, unfortunately, that meta metaphorical forgetting of wedding vows is a pretty common place. I am going to read a little bit from the iPad here because there is some statistic statistics which are just always a hoot, so I want to make sure I get them right. So according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, around 30% of all marriages in Australia result in divorce. However, in 2021, there were somewhere just over 89,000 marriages, of which Encounter was only responsible for about half. Uh, <laughs> and there were 56,000 divorces. Granted, there were fewer marriages in 2021 20, uh, than average due to a little pandemic that was going on, and this also leads to the argument that confined space and lockdowns and a disruption to our normal lives probably helped to inflate this figure. And again, I don't remember the part in those beautiful vows we just read that says, unless we have to spend heaps more time together, <laughs> or unless things get really tough, or unless I get a little bit sick, or really sick, or if money gets way too tight, or if I lose my job or my hours get cut. I don't remember that bit in what we just read out. One more statistic on this, and this was the one that I think, for me personally, really set the tone. In 2001, 46.9% of all marriages were overseen by a minister of religion in Australia. That's not just a Christian pastor or a preacher, etc. There was 46.9% of all marriages were overseen by a minister of religion. In 2021, that figure was down to 19.3%. That is a huge drop, and I think sets a tone. The top five reasons, stay with me for a sec if you can, the top five reasons for separation and divorce in Australia are infidelity, continual arguments or conflict, poor communication, financial reasons, and unfortunately, domestic violence, coercive control, and abuse. Now, if this list wasn't so heartbreaking, it would almost be comical promises and vows that we make to one another deemed so important on the most important day of our lives in front of family and friends and loved ones the betrayal of those ideals or refusing to make them the, the foundation that we promised we would they get mirrored back to us as the core reasons for our relationships breaking down to having to hold from this day forward for better for worse for richer or poorer, poorer in sickness in health 
to love and to cherish. Failure to uphold the things we promise each other in marriage became the very reason the marriages end. Simply their fierce hearts. Now, I promise enough, right? What did I told you this is not what you were expecting when we came in. You're like, yay, marriage, wait, what? We're going to move on to marriage now. It's a, marriage, it's a sermon on marriage, not divorce, and you're right. But church, hear me clearly when I say that Australia's approach to marriage currently is simply not working. Anything with a 30% failure rate is not a successful thing. We need to review that. So how do we, as followers of Christ, look to be countercultural in this way, in a way that honors our Creator and our wife or husband in equal measures? And we'll go back to our teaching text, Matthew 19, 4-6. He said to them, have you not read that he who has made them in the first place made them man and woman? It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and will live with his wife. The two will become one, so they are no longer two but one. Let no man divide what God has put together. This was Jesus' response when it was asked directly and specifically about marriage itself. And the foundation of his response is lifted directly from Genesis 2, 23 to 24. Directly. The man said, this is now the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. No longer two, but one. And a marriage is designed to operate in exactly that way. Where two become one, one man, one woman, like the mixing of yeast through flour. And once it's done, it should be impossible to separate again. That we're to leave our mothers and our fathers to be truly united, to become one flesh. And I want to point us very quickly again back to the marriage vows we looked at earlier. These same vows are a version thereof repeated by Christians too. So why should we expect that our results will be any different? And you're going to kick yourselves. It says right in the name. A vow. And one definition of vows is a sacred promise, an oath, or a holy pledge. A commitment or undertaking that is for your highest benefit, an agreement between you and God. Now, hear me on this, church. When you make these vows on your wedding day, you're absolutely making them to your partner, as you should. However, and most importantly, you're also making these vows with God. These pledges that you're making to your wife or husband uh, to be a vow that you're also making with God, the definition is the foundation of our discipleship with Jesus. A commitment to an undertaking that is for your highest benefit and an agreement between yourself and God. How often in life are we forced to fall back to remembering that God has a path for us? He has a model to show us, um, which is for our highest benefit. Are marriage vows that we rip directly from the Bible? No, of course they're not. There's nowhere in the Bible you will find that put that succinctly. But I think the meaning and intent behind them is all but the purpose for the gospel itself putting others above ourselves, not being limited by illness or finance, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It's love thy neighbor to its very core. It's not God's words, but my goodness, it's got God's breath all over them. And this reason we need to hold it so dear and strive to uphold it, because we willingly enter into that vow, into a union between husband, wife, and God. Ecclesiastes 5.5 says, it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not to fulfill it. Now, I'm not here to tell you that marriage is greater or more important than singleness. JB covered that last week. If you want to hear about that, he did it brilliantly. For me to say that marriage is more important than singleness would not be biblical and it simply wouldn't be true. 
I am here to tell you is that should you choose to enter into a marriage, you have a responsibility to treat that as what it is. It's a covenant between you, your husband and wife, husband or wife, and God. Now, the good news is God knows that we're absolutely going to screw up. He's factored that in already. Uh, Our willingness, our desire, our heart should be in fulfillment of these vows, these promises we make to one another. More importantly, again, the promises that we make to God. Now, I've repeated that sentiment like five, ten times already. And the reason is because it's super duper important. If you take one thing away from this, that is your takeaway. So what are ways that we can do that to honor the Trinity that exists within the boundaries of a healthy biblical marriage? I've got three points, because of course I've got three points, because there's always three points, (laughs) that are vitally important. Now before I begin, I do think it's important that I say at no point am I thinking of or pointing at or speaking or calling out, speaking to directly or calling out anybody in this room. That's unkind, it wouldn't be helpful, it would just be downright not, not nice. However, if you do hear any of the things to follow or anything that's said already and it speaks to you, do not ignore that. Again, we remind ourselves, I'm only up here to try and do my best version of justice to the words that God's already spoken. Point number one, you need to prioritize your discipleship under Jesus. Sex, this is a marriage sermon. Yes, it is. Point number one stands as point number one. Church, you know it's important, it's literally why you're here right now, and when you make a decision to follow Jesus, you're making a declaration that He and His teachings are the way. A calling to a life better than the one you have, a pathway to a love that's beyond our comprehension, and an example for living a more fruitful life in all areas, but it comes by putting Jesus first. Matthew 10, 37 to 38, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. These are heavy, heavy words. Putting Jesus above our parents, our children, or in this case, our partner, it's not a serving suggestion, it's an expectation. Okay? Taking up our cross in ways that at times feel like they're to the detriment of our own wants or our family's desires, it's kind of part of the deal, guys. So that kind of leads us to my next, my next little point, not point two, point one A, if you will, is that part of this is perseverance is a part of this discipleship under Jesus. Perseverance is a word we all like to use, um, but it's a word that we all struggle to live, myself included. It's a spiritual discipline. Perseverance looks like showing up to church on a Sunday when you don't feel like it, when you'd rather stay in bed getting up early to go to the gym because you promised yourself you would. It means showing up for your wife or husband time and time again, emotionally opening up, physically being present, not just for those initial butterflies and not just for the early years when a tinkle in the eye is more common than an argument about who forgot to empty the dishwasher again. And a lack of perseverance is a discipleship issue. It's a relationship issue and it's absolutely a marriage issue. If you struggle with your perseverance outside of marriage, you will absolutely struggle with it within your marriage. If there's any other areas of your marriage that you're, uh, any other areas of your discipleship under Jesus that you're ignoring, do you think you'll nail those in your marriage as well? Marriage isn't always easy. Much like our relationship with Jesus gets better the deeper and the harder that we work, the same is true for marriage. Now, I love my wife with everything that I have. Some of my fondest memories are, well, it's, I 
I'm just going to get real sappy for a second, Tarek. I'm just going to not look her way because she'll then get all awkward about it. But genuinely, some of my happiest memories, uh, I'll never forget the look on Tara's face when she came down the aisle on our wedding day. Uh, the tears that we cried at the birth of our children. Uh, laughter that we've shared over the years. This will kill me for this one, but genuinely, there's a video of Tara trying to learn how to floss, which is just <laughs> chef's kiss elite, right? We, have, we laugh, we, we laugh, man. Our kitchen and our living room, this is, this is what we do. As a family, we get together and we do stupid things and we laugh. But I'll be honest, I, I loved her more the first time she pushed through a night without sleep to look after one of our kids. I, uh, I loved her more on the day that I got made redundant from my job and didn't know what I was going to do and she held me tighter every time I tried to push away from that hug. Um, and I love her more every time she's brave enough to let me sit with her while she cries, as she shares a great and deep fear, or when she's been strong enough to put back, push back at me at a time when I need to be pushed back on. Anybody can be there for the easy stuff, but earning those moments of weakness from each other, that's where the good stuff is. Thank you. <laughs> it's why prioritizing discipleship is so important and why today's first point the pattern set in a life of discipleship sets a pattern and foundation for us all in our other relationships as well. So I know I'm talking on marriage, but that strong discipleship with Jesus sets a foundation for every relationship that you have and will continue to do so if you treat it with the respect that it deserves. And it will lead me to point number two. I'll take a deep breath on this one. If you're a Christian, you need to marry another Christian. Now for some, that's a massive no-brainer. And for some of you, the second you heard me say it and the second you saw it on a slide, your shoulders lifted up a little bit and the neck got a little bit tight and you may have gotten a little bit frustrated. So, I'd like to start with a quote which will hopefully, for everybody, allow us to just take a nice deep breath again. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 14. To the rest I say, I am not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman who has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. So before I proceed with anything further, before I say another word, if you are in this room and you are a non-believer, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for taking the time and sacrificing what could have been a time that you could have spent anywhere else to hear music that may not speak to you or a word that may not have spoken to you yet. And hopefully it'll help to resonate or shine a light on something that you may not have seen before. And if you're here because of a relationship you have with a Christian in this room, please refer to those words, not mine, which are taken straight from Scripture, because I want to honour your presence here today and I want to honour the relationship you have with the person who you're here with today. Now, if you're in this room and you are a Christian in a relationship, married or otherwise, with a non-Christian or vice versa, I need you to hear that everything follows from now is through that prism from Apostle Paul's above words. I am not, I am not standing on this platform to say you should be breaking up or anything to that effect. Awkward segue. <laughs> As Tim Keller beautifully puts it, the Christian view of marriage does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. There is nothing, by the great Tim Keller or otherwise, to indicate that a couple that doesn't share the same belief structure cannot have a happy marriage. 
within the boundaries of a Christian marriage, sacrificial love is the expectation. As we discussed earlier, in a non-Christian marriage, wedding vows and promises and ideals are beautiful intentions that are promised by one person to another person. But that's it. When we're simply beholden to another person, our words, their intentions, the battles we choose to fight and the ones we choose to ignore, they're dictated by our own thoughts and our own emotions. And each of our own thoughts and emotions are a result of our own experience and thus completely inconsistent. And as we've heard from the earlier statistics, a post-enlightenment world, which is marked by gratification, satisfaction, fulfillment of our own desires, it puts a crushing burden of expectation on our spouses. Absolutely crushing. Expectations that our partners were never meant to weather in a Christian marriage. It was never intended to be that way. And it leaves us desperately trapped between unrealistic longing for and terrible fears about marriage. Jacob spoke last week about the idolatry of sex and marriage. And it becomes exactly that a burden that our wives and husbands were never expected to carry, and I hate to break it to you, they are simply not capable of. Again, I'll reiterate, because it bears repeating, no one is telling you to separate from your partner, but at the minimum, if you're in a relationship and you are a Christian or they are a Christian Christian and vice versa, you should be 100% genuine about who you are and whose you are, and exactly what that means to you as a follower of Jesus. How that impacts and changes your worldview, your approach to love, generosity, finance, how you prioritize your time and your social habits. Do not try and hide that within you. That's not fair to you. And I'll be honest, it's so incredibly unfair to your partner. It will lead to heartache and it will lead to pain long term. Now, despite what people know or what they may think they know about me, I actually feel like I can speak pretty well into this situation. Some of you would know a little bit about my testimony, 34 years of self-proclaimed atheism, followed by a pretty dramatic turn towards Jesus. Kara and I both raising our hand during an altar call on the same day at the same time, unbeknownst to each other. It changed the trajectory of our family and our, our family, of our family, our lives, individually, and our family's life as well. Three Horners baptized, two to go, right? That's right. I hear that. I receive that. Now, here's the bit that you probably don't know. is about three months, and I'm going to get the time frame wrong here, and Kari, you can correct me later. Uh, I didn't want to, I don't know. I didn't want to, anyway, we'll keep on moving. About three months before we came to Encounter, we'd been attending another church for about 12 months, and Kara had been really, really leaning into faith again and really feeling something and a bit of a stirring and probably hadn't had that moment yet of full acceptance of Jesus, but was certainly headed that way. Um, And I'd been softening, but I certainly wouldn't have called myself a Christian at that point, not even close. And Kara came to me and said, hey, uh, there's baptisms upcoming at the church that we were going to, and I I think I would like to get baptized. And I talked her out of it. She'd been quietly growing in her faith, and I just knocked it back. I didn't forbid it. I certainly didn't support it. I didn't understand it. I couldn't see the value or importance. And despite her strong feelings, 
she actually honored me above herself in that moment. And it was only in writing this sermon that I see how much of a wedge that could have driven into our marriage. Kara put her position of wife before her position of disciple in that moment. She knew it wasn't permanent, but it must have hurt. Now that perseverance we were talking about before, if you want a great example, go and talk to Kara for the service. She carries it in spades. And if it weren't for her perseverance and her patience, I promise you there'd be somebody else up here right now giving a sermon on marriage. Guarantee it. There was never a thought of separation or divorce, but a desire to sanctify her husband through perseverance, time and proximity. I actually don't know how any of the conversations in our marriage would have gone long term if we hadn't both raised our hand at some point. I don't, that's not, it's not for dramatic effect, I have no idea. The fact that our, our timing and our moment happened at the same day is God's will. <laughs> we couldn't have manufactured that. Couldn't have manufactured it and it made it incredibly clear the path we, were, we, we were meant to follow. Keller again. Get used to hearing Keller's name today, the guy's the best. Anytime you read a good quote on marriage, just look at the bottom, I promise it says reverence from Keller. Okay. Sorry, I've lost my place because I've got myself all a fluster. Marriage is a way for two spiritual friends to help each other on their journey to become the persons that God designed them to be. Without a personal foundation built on the rock that is Jesus Christ, there is no agreed-upon rule book. There's no agreed-upon adjudicator. Biblical truth and understanding is exactly that. It's truth. And when two people have a clear understanding of what truth is, a clearly defined set of boundaries which they apply to their life, it makes it much easier to find dry land when you're in the middle of a storm. Let's take a sip of water as we reach point three. Don't worry. Point three is a good one, I like to think. It is. Your partner is not perfect. And neither are you. I hate to break it to you. We need to remember and exist in a space where our imperfections and our failings are something that we're able to work through better if we're utilizing points one and two as our foundation. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and it affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Now, whether we recognize it or not, we all enter into a relationship and marriage with our preconceived notions of what that is meant to look like. Expectations around love, sex, traditional gender roles, ambition, mission, finance, health, you name it, we've all got an opinion on what it's meant to look like. And honestly, that's, that's not okay because that's when the problems arise, is when we expect all of these personal needs to be fulfilled instead of focusing on our why, we focus on our want. And our want can be created from a myriad of different places. Our why remains consistent. Because our why has, is, and will always be Jesus Christ. The example of long-term commitment to an imperfect other half is laid out pretty clearly for us by Jesus himself. That's right, text, Jesus was single and celibate his entire life. How does he have an example for us? I'm glad you asked, imaginary congregant. 
Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom countless times in the Bible. And we as the church are referred to as his bride. Now, I don't know if you've worked this out yet, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of accidents in the Bible. Language is deliberate and it's important. Jesus' love for his church wasn't born out of its perfection, I hate to break it to you, but out of his covenant he had made to us as his people and thus his unshakable and unending love for us. And in that space, we can truly learn, grow, love and flourish. The vows that we make to each other, the promises that Jesus has laid out for us are not a declaration of present love, or not just a declaration of present love, but they're a mutually binding promise of a love that is and is to come. Because His truth is born out of His love for us, and thus our exposure of our flaws isn't done as a method to hurt us, but to help us grow into the best version of ourselves, and the same is true in a healthy marriage in which Jesus is the root. Our flaws aren't a deal breaker, but they are part of the deal. When times are tough and we're struggling to find that connection with one another, we need to never forget that. Our imperfection and flaws are what make us human. Graciousness and generosity for and towards towards each other is the way of Jesus. They were the vows that we promised, that we agreed would help to form the basis for each and every day until death do us part. I'd like to welcome the team back up, if that's okay. Now, I can't help but reiterate that the reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it's a reflection of the gospel itself, which itself is wonderful and painful all the same. That these vows we make to one another sit under God's authority and will, and a failure to uphold and honour them is a failure to each other that we simply cannot abide. Jesus provides us an example of love that is so much greater than our understanding. But we do need to understand that it does exist. And that no matter what, it's not going anywhere. That your frailties and your flaws and your sin is already accounted for. And that your mistakes are not permanent. That's why your earthly covenant with your spouse has to echo this. Failing love from Jesus has to be known and felt and lived in this room, so you're the last one to serve. You have to know it because you have to know that there is safety in this. That our prayers aren't falling on deaf or unsympathetic ears. That our heartaches and trials are being poured shoulder to shoulder with our Creator. And that our joys are His joys. Without safety in all of that, 